dreary but beautiful Sunday. And uh, we are going to dismiss children for Children's Church. That's ages 4 through 1st grade. And you can follow Mr. Wenzel out this north door. Now, as we get things started, I'm just going to try something. He is risen! You see, this is a reality that doesn't change just because we celebrated it one week. It's true throughout the year. In fact, our Orthodox brothers and sisters are celebrating Orthodox Easter today. And so, what a great time to celebrate, again, this reality that changes everything. You see, last week we were focusing in on the hope of the resurrection, especially looking through the eyes of those who witnessed the risen Christ, these eyewitnesses. We kind of focused in on two. First is a woman named Mary Magdalene who was broken, who was tormented by the enemy, and then Jesus meets her. He redeems her, restores her. And then she's kind of crumbled all over again when she sees him die, thinking that this is the end. She's there to pick up the pieces, and yet Jesus reveals himself he opens her eyes and saying, Mary. And changes her from a weeper to his witness. To take his message of his resurrection to his disciples. And then we looked at Simon Peter, who was the lead disciple of his crew. The man who was bold, proclaiming, you are the Christ. And yet when push came to shove and his life was threatened, he denied that he knew Jesus three times. And he was crumbled by his shame. But even after Jesus was risen from the dead, he was not so sure that was good news. Because he had failed Jesus, and he was certain that Jesus was done with him. So he went back to what he knew, to fishing. And Jesus graciously pursues him and says to him three times, Peter, or Simon, son of John, do you love me? And restores him and moves him from a failure to faithful. And that didn't mean that Peter didn't fail in the future, but he was faithful to Jesus and following him to the end of his days. Well, today, we're going to continue this series of eyewitnesses looking at two doubters, two that were very close to him. One who was one of his disciples, we just read about him, Thomas, and another from his own family. You see, one of them doubted because of Jesus' death. One of them doubted because of Jesus' life. But both were transformed when they came in contact with the risen Christ, and they were never the same. I'm talking about, again, Thomas, or Didymus, as his nickname is, and James, the half-brother of Jesus. And we're going to see how Jesus transforms them. So let me pray for us, and then we'll dig into this word see the hope that God wants to put in our hearts today. So Lord Jesus, again, as we have affirmed that you are the lion and the lamb, you've conquered sin and death, and because of that, we have life in you. And those of us who have put our faith in you, indeed, we will rise. But as we wait for your return, Lord Jesus, would you cause us to be faithful would you cause us to be full of faith, trusting you? And would you draw someone today that is a doubter, that is not quite sure that you are who you say you are, that you've done what you say you've done, or maybe is just afraid to hope again? 
Would you draw that man, that woman to yourself and give them life, give them hope, give them the peace that only you can. Lord Jesus, in your name I pray these things. Amen. So we're going to start out just talking about the background of these two men. We're going to start with Thomas, also known as Didymus. And that word Didymus means twin. We're not quite sure why he was called Didymus. We believe it was a nickname. Did he have a twin brother or sister? Did he look like one of the other disciples in the group? Or did he even look like Jesus himself somehow? Well, that's what they called him. He was one of the twelve. And here's the thing about Thomas. We oftentimes kind of say, you know, oh, he was a doubting Thomas, kind of in a negative sense. I think that's a bad rap for Thomas. I think he was tremendously loyal to Jesus. I think he was tremendously devoted to him. In John's Gospel, in chapter 11, we read about a man named Lazarus who is dying. He's, he's living in Bethany, in an area called Judea. And Lazarus' sisters beckon that Jesus will come and heal him before he dies. And then he does die. And Jesus has to tell his disciples, we're, we're going to go there. And, and we're going to deal with this as only the Son of God, the God in the flesh, could deal with this situation. But here's the problem. Jesus has kind of been run out of Judea by some of the Jews who are looking to stone him. And, and his disciples remind him of that. Hey, hey, Jesus, remember last time? It didn't go so well. People are looking to stone you. And Jesus says, I'm going. I'm going. And Thomas knows this. And so in verse 16 of chapter 11, he says, Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. But guys, this is what we signed up for. He's our rabbi, and we're with him in life and in death. Thomas was so devoted, his self-concern, his self-preservation is put aside. So Thomas is a devoted doubter. He's a devoted doubter. And this is how it plays out after Jesus has died. Remember, we just read, that when Jesus first appears to the disciples, that Thomas was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Where was he? What was going on? Why was he missing? Why was he MIA? I believe he was weeping by himself. I think he was so devastated by seeing Jesus die, that, and him not dying with him, that he just... He couldn't be in the echo chamber of his other co-disciples. He's like, I, I, I can't deal with this. And he needed to be alone. And some of us are just wired like that. That's just who we are. So when the other disciples say, we have seen the Lord, Thomas is driven, his doubt is driven, and his demand is driven by this, by this devotion. He says in verse 25, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. And it almost seems angry and arrogant, but that's the thing. He, I cannot be hurt again. I cannot go through this heartbreak again. And if you guys have somehow been fooled and deceived, I, 
No. You see, Thomas saw Jesus die. It's very specific. I saw those nails in his hands. I saw the spear in his side. And that is what I need to see in order to believe. Literally, I need the proof in the, not pudding, but putting, if you will. Sorry about that. Maybe you're like Thomas. Somewhere down the line, you've been disappointed. Or maybe you're even disappointed with God. Prayers were not answered. Things didn't work out like you expected. And you know what? It's, it's understandable this world is broken. It is. And there's something, some witness within us that says in our hearts, this is not how it ought to be. And God says, you're right. But just wait. Just wait. My timing is perfect. So hang in there. We're going to see the answer come in a minute. So that's where Thomas is at in his doubting. Then we get to James, though. James is Jesus' half-brother. And there are many Jameses in the New Testament. When we get to the Gospels, we get James, the son of Zebedee, which is John's brother. Okay? So if you've seen The Chosen, he's Big James. And then you have James, the son of Alphaeus. He's also known as James the Less. And if you've seen The Chosen, he's Little James. In, in, that, uh, in that series. So these are two disciples. But this is a third James. This James is Jesus' half-brother. And we know that because the Apostle Paul identifies him in Galatians chapter 1, verse 19, where he goes up to Jerusalem to talk to the apostles. And at this point, James becomes, has become an apostle. It says, I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. He's not talking about a cousin. He's not talking about a relative. He's talking about someone who is literally his brother. Now, you may think, well, that'd be kind of cool to have Jesus as my older brother. I don't think so. I think it'd be like, why can't you be like your brother Jesus? You're never going to measure up to the, <laughs> the Son of God who is also you know, perfect in every way. And by the time is, by the time that they were of age and Jesus has inaugurated his earthly ministry, Jesus' brothers, I don't think are so enamored by Jesus or his ministry. And we know this from John chapter 7, verses 2 through 5. Listen to this. But when the Jewish festival of the tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave! Leave Galilee and go up to Judea so that your disciples may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. And then it says in verse 5, for even his brothers did not believe in him. Do you see what's going on here in this conversation? It's an antagonistic attitude. It's mockery. It's sarcasm. Hey, if you're the Messiah... Hey, go show everybody. You know, go put on a show at the, at the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. You know, if you continue the conversation, Jesus says, hey, my time has not come. Your timing and my timing are not the same. But James and his brothers, James was a cynical critic. 
And whatever ideas that James had about what Messiah was going to look like, his older brother didn't seem to measure up somehow. You know, any of you have siblings? Brother, sister? Think about this. Just work with me here for a moment. There's an interesting dynamic between brothers and sisters and siblings. Instruction or something that might be good advice or godly advice that you would receive from somebody you respect, someone who you admire, if your brother or your sister says that, you don't receive that as well, do you? Something about the fact that, look, I know you, I've lived with you. And somehow you just, it's like, it might be the truth, but you just don't want to hear it. I think that's what's going on here. There's just this kind of thing. You're my brother. That's all they can see. Mr. Perfect. Right? But James is going to have a life-changing experience with the encounter of the risen Christ. So back to Thomas. Okay? You see, Jesus reveals himself in a very specific manner to Thomas. Look at verses 26 and 27 of John 20. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. And if, if our calendar matches up, Easter was last week, that would be today. Just a thought. And Thomas was with them, though the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? And reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Now, I don't know how you read this, but I think Jesus is being quite kind to Thomas. In essence, he's just repeating what he did a week ago for all the other disciples. He gets to have that experience again. But think about this. First of all, the door is locked, all right? And then Jesus appears among them. This is not a natural experience. So there's something supernatural going on here. Of course it is. This is Jesus risen from the dead. And he appears in bodily form. He's there. He's not, he's not a ghost. He's not an apparition. And then Jesus invites Thomas to do what he demanded. Here you go, Thomas. Put your fingers in that nail hole. Here's my side, Thomas. Go ahead, put your hand in there. See where it's been riven by that spear. I think it's very gracious. And this experience tells us two things. First of all, that Jesus, as the Messiah, as God in the flesh, is not limited to be in physical proximity to know and hear the cries of his followers. But number two, and this is more specific here, these scars are the legitimizing evidence that Jesus has risen from the dead, and he has spent himself expensively for us. You see, his body is glorified, but the scars still remain. He will have those scars for eternity. 
marks of extravagant love. Let me tell you where this played out really specifically. I grew up in the Bay Area. In the early, you know, late 60s, uh, early 70s, it was fashionable for men to grow out their hair and their beards like Jesus, right? The hippie movement. If you've seen the uh, movie Jesus Revolution, that's a little bit of what's going on right there in, in the Bay Area. So one Sunday in one of the churches, a little scandalous thing happened. See, man came walking down the middle of the aisle in the middle of the service. Long hair, beard, robe, barefooted. Everyone's going, what is going on? And he gets to the front. And he tells everyone, I'm Jesus. And the pastor is panicking. Okay, what do I do with this? Because we believe Jesus is coming back, right? But the pastor also thinks biblically. He says, friend, show me your hands. Show me your feet. Show me your side. Where are the nail scarred holes? And the guy said, oh, they've healed. He says, no. No. That is the mark of the crucified and risen Lord. It will always be the mark. That's why the vision in Revelation is a lion, and yet it's a lamb that is slain. Those love marks that are there for eternity. There is an integrity between Jesus' crucified body and His glorified body. So, Jesus reveals Himself very specifically to Thomas. Jesus reveals Himself graciously to His brother James. And we read about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, where the Apostle Paul recalls, and He appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Now we do not have a specific account in Scripture about how this happened. But the point is, is that Jesus graciously revealed himself to someone who was a cynic, a doubter, an antagonist about his authenticity as Christ and Messiah. And I would say when it happened, it was probably pretty surprising and pretty humbling. Can you imagine that? Like, oh, it's been true all along. Forgive me, my brother. Forgive me, my Lord. I'm sure it was pretty humbling. And maybe that's why in his letter he included this quote, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. James had to ultimately humble himself about his mistaken understanding about who his earthly brother was. He certainly made no demands on how Jesus would appear because he didn't even expect him to appear. But I want to ask you this. If you're investigating faith in Christ, if you're investigating the truth of the the, um, resurrection, are you demanding it has to happen in a certain manner? Are you saying, I need to see it 
this way, or I need this to happen. I need Jesus to actually appear before me. I don't know what your thoughts are. And then you don't even expect it to happen? What does that say about your heart attitude? And if you were God, would you reveal yourself to you with your current attitude? I want to get back to how Jesus reveals himself to Thomas here, and I think this will make a connection. Verse 29, Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. Let me say that again. Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. And if your faith is in Christ Jesus, that's every one of us in this room. Blessed are you who have not seen, and yet you believe. Unless Jesus has appeared to you in some sort of a dream, which is happened in a lot of Muslim countries where there's no active gospel presentation. But here's my point. Jesus was very gracious in appearing to James. And if this is you, a person who's cynical about this, Jesus does not owe you anything. He does not owe you anything. Because... If you're demanding that he does it a certain way, I want to ask the question, are you taking advantage of the witness that's around you already? Of the eyewitnesses, the accounts? If you don't think you have any resources, I'm going to give you one today. These are at our welcome desk. It's called, Is Easter Unbelievable? And it gives you a logical reason to believe and a historical reason to believe that Jesus has risen from the dead. There's God's Word. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's very succinct. Myself, Pastor Neil, would love to talk to you about the, the reason we believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not a fairy tale. That's the point. We have very rational reasons for believing that Christ has risen from the dead. And there are other resources out there. Take advantage of them. But if you're not going to take advantage of those, why would God want to reveal himself to you? Why would Jesus want to reveal himself to you? You're a cynic. You're keeping him at arm's length. Take advantage of what God has provided. But also check your own heart attitude. Because here's what I want to hold out to you as a promise and hope for you. This comes from the Older Testament. In Jeremiah chapter 29, 13. But this is what God promises. If you will seek me, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Are you willing to seek him? Say, God, reveal yourself to me. I'm seeking you with all my heart. Take God at his word, and I promise you, my friend, he will reveal himself to you. Because that's who our God is. He is faithful to his word, even if you are being unfaithful. But reveal yourself to me, Lord Jesus, and he will. But if you continue making it a mockery, I wouldn't expect much. Although he is gracious with cynics, just like his brother James. So, the end of the story here. What happens to Thomas? Again, back to verse 27. 
Then then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand, put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Thomas goes from a doubter to a declarer of Jesus' deity. As far as we know, this is the first public declaration of one of the 12 apostles declaring that Jesus is God. That doesn't mean it doesn't happen later on, but this is the first one to say, you are God. You are my Lord and you are God. And Thomas is personally transformed from a doubter into somebody who's going to declare the goodness of the gospel. A bold declaim proclaimer that Jesus is alive and well, that He is Lord and God. And Thomas, like the rest of the apostles, would go through the persecution that takes place from the council of the Sanhedrin as he will be beaten for his witness to Jesus Christ, as we find that in Acts chapter 5, and he counts himself blessed to have suffered for the name. It is all worth it. And he will rejoice that he was counted worthy to suffer for Jesus' name. And then, as far as we know from church history, Thomas will leave and will take the gospel to India, to a place we call now Madras. And he'll die for his faith in Christ. A spear will go right through him. But he will do that. He will offer up himself joyfully. Because he has heard the words of the risen Savior that says, I am the resurrection and the life, and the one who believes in me will live even though they die. And he knew it was true. And is experiencing that truth. Again, maybe you're like Thomas. (laughs) You are afraid to hope because of disappointment. You're afraid... And that you'll be disappointed in God that things won't work out like you planned. And I'm going to tell you, things won't work out like you planned. Because He is God and you're not. But, God can take those things that are negative, that seem horrible, and He uses them for His good. It's God at work. And again, the cross was the greatest expression of this. I want to refer to you Romans 8.28, a verse that many of us have memorized in in this room. But I want to remind you of this truth. The first three words are, and we know. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purposes. How do we know? We know because of the cross. What seemed like the worst day in the apostles' lives, in Thomas' life, that came through came true. It was ultimately the best day for all of us. Because there Jesus took upon himself our sin that we deserved. And then on the third day, he conquered death. A foe that none of us can conquer. But He did it for us. This tragedy, 
God uses for victory, for good for all of us. That is how our God operates. And folks, I know, I know some of you have suffered things and you're going, God, what kind of good are you going to bring out of this? You may see that on the side of heaven. You may not. But we know that God works all things for the good for those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. Because that is who He is. That is the God we serve. That is His nature. And that is what He said He's going to do. We take Him at His word. So if that's you, you have reason to hope. And again, you may see it now, you may not. But God will use all things for His good if you love Him. He wastes nothing. It's for our good. And then James, our cynical brother, he's transformed graciously and he's received into the early church. If you look at Acts chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus' brothers are there gathered with the church as they're waiting for the blessed Holy Spirit to fall on Pentecost. And eventually he becomes the lead apostle or bishop of the, of the church of Jerusalem due to the itinerant ministry of Peter and John. We can read about that in Acts chapter 15. But his real gift to you and me, to the church throughout all time, is that letter that he penned under his own name. Five short chapters, but very poignant and very practical about living the Christian life. And what is the major theme of that book? That faith without works is dead. That our faith in Christ is not just an intellectual ascension, but it is a living faith that says, I'm taking Jesus at his word, and I'm going to live this out. And that matters in how we treat people, Show favoritism? Do we love our neighbor as ourselves? That matters in how we use our tongue. James is bringing the fire, literally, on that issue. It matters in how we deal with co-workers. It matters also in, are we loving this world or are we loving Christ? If you haven't read it for a while, go back and read it. I highly recommend it. The major theme is, faith without works is dead. That doesn't mean our works save us, but it says Jesus saved us that our faith might work. That's what he intended for you and me. See, James goes on from an antagonizer to the advocate of an active faith. That's what Jesus did in his cynical half-brother. And maybe you're like James. Maybe you're still kind of skeptical about this, you know, Jesus rising from the dead thing. And that's okay. If you have legitimate intellectual questions, you know what, there are answers to the things to engage um, about this. I'd love to talk to you. I've got resources, what have you. But here's what I want to ask you, and you have to answer this question honestly in your heart. If it is true, if it is true that Jesus has risen from the dead, then would you follow him? Then would you follow him? And if the answer is no, then the issue in your heart and mind is not intellectual. It's a heart issue about who's going to lead your life. 
So I want you to be honest with yourself. I want you to be even honest before God because maybe if you don't like what you see, you need to ask God to do a work in your heart. To change your perspective. Because this is too important of a matter to just push on down the road, to kick the can down the road. This needs to change your life now and change it for eternity. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 11-12, the Scripture says, This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and that life is in His Son, not anything else. Only in His Son. And he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. There's going to be a great winnowing at the end of time. Do you have the Son? Do you have life? Or do you not have the Son and not have life? Today you can have life if you'll choose the Son. And know that we have a God who pursues skeptics. He's pursuing you right now. He's pursuing you right now. But will you respond? Or are you insisting that Jesus appear to you in some certain way? Hmm. So, we have a God who pursues doubters. Praise the Lord. I think a lot of us have experienced that in our life. So let me pray for us, and I'll have the worship team come and close us. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your grace to pursue those who don't deserve it, and that is all of us, Lord. But specifically, you pursued a, a brother who didn't believe in you, who was an antagonistic, but you graciously revealed yourself. And you graciously revealed yourself to someone who was devastated, Lord. And you did it very specifically to prove a point to him and to all of us. Thank you for the marks of love that remain in your body eternally. And we give you glory and we give you thanks. Would you give us grace to have an active faith and live for you, day in and day out, moment by moment. And Lord Jesus, it's in your precious name I pray these things. Amen. Would you stand?